0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's, it's different than the other three. So you think, And I want to talk about that just a little bit um, to set up what we're going to do over these next uh, three weeks. Um, but John's gospel, is, is, it, it takes a different kind of pace and a different kind of entry point to the life and the person of Jesus than, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And of course you realize Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John um, entered on, onto the scene together um, very early, and, and this is something really worth thinking about um, from the standpoint of how we read our Bibles. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, what the early church would refer to as the fourfold gospel, that witnesses to the singularity of the gospel in Jesus, That those four books began to travel together very early. Um, in, in fact, w- when we think about the importance of technology and what technology does for the dissemination of information, this is its own fascinating history within the, in, within the, the world, especially the Western world, the rise of the medium of the book so you think about it, a lot, a lot of the, I teach the Old Testament for a living, uh, most of the books of the Old Testament up until the time of Jesus, think, think of it in those terms, were written on scrolls that were housed within the temple. And one might even think that the temple was a kind of repository for the template or the master or, or, the, or the special scrolls that were there that were kind of the standard by which all the other ones were measured. Um, so they would go in and there was, there's, there's the Isaiah shelf and there's the Jeremiah shelf and there's the Deuteronomy shelf. And you, you can imagine uh, the ways in which the temple uh, would play that, that role in, in housing the scrolls. And they were rather large things. Um, but the book and the technology of the book that now we move from scroll form to book form so that now you have a kind of binding together of paper so that you can move backwards and forwards in ways that you could not do with the scroll. We take this for granted, right? I I wasn't planning to talk about this, but but, but think about it from the standpoint of what our kids will take for granted technologically that you and I are still getting used to. I mean, I, I even see my own children thinking about moving from idea to idea in terms of swiping a page on their phone, right, or the iPad. I mean, that's a technology that's forming the ways in which they think and receive information. I'm not giddy about it, by the way, but that's, that's where we are. Um, we do that with a book. We, we turn a book and we open our pages and we realize that this tactile thing, we can move from forward to back and we can have some sense of, 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 of movement through that technology and that medium. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John began to travel together in the life of the church very early through the medium of this new technology called, they called it the Codex, but we'll just call it the book. And here books are now traveling, so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that were, that were sent together to be a, a fourfold witness to the singularity of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about that is When you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all give us a kind of entry point to the life of Jesus that's a little bit different from the other. Um, And Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially give us an entry point into the life of Jesus that's construed in terms of a forward-moving narrative, so that you have the announcement of Jesus and his birth on the front end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then Jesus enters into his public ministry. And then Jesus in time unfolds the fullness of his, of his divine identity. This is why, for example, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially in Mark, you'll have Jesus saying things that, and, and again, this can be troubling to us to kind of think through it, but saying things like, by the way, don't tell anybody what I did. Have you read Jesus say that? He, he, he heals someone. He raises someone from the dead. He heals someone from their blindness. And he says, by the way, don't, don't, don't let anybody know this. And that's what scholars call the messianic secret. And in, in other words, Jesus is allowing his messianic divine identity to unfold in its fullness over time. And, and where, where does that move us to? It moves us to the cross and then to the greatest divine and premature of all time, the resurrection of the dead. When Jesus exits the tomb alive and embodied in in, in his body and he's breathing again on the far side of his death, now we see from the end point, oh my, we know who this Jesus is. He is the Messiah and he is the Son of God both at the same time and that's how the narratives unfold in that that sort of forward-moving plot. That's not how John does it. Um, John Gospel brings you into the narrative from the standpoint of the whole right from the beginning. There's no guessing work with John about who this Jesus is. John wants you to know right out of verse 1 that you are dealing, when you encounter Jesus of Nazareth, you are encountering God in the flesh. That's not something to be unveiled in time. That's something to kind of meet you right outside of the gate. And John's Gospel, you know, from, from I think... A legitimate perspective assumes that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a reason I think that John's gospel often comes and really always comes forth in that, in that grouping of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because John's gospel assumes that you've read the narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now John's gospel wants to let you know from another vantage point who this Jesus is and to allow the totality of Jesus' person and work to shape your understanding of Jesus' story and life in this world. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, described the gospel of John by the image of the eagle. Um, what does the eagle do? The eagle soars high above, looking down. Uh, so the Gospel of John is contemplative and it's focusing on the divinity of Jesus, while I think one could say that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, focus on uh, Jesus' uh, humanity that's revealed in time in relationship to his, to his divinity. So that's, to me, that's a fascinating aspect of what John's Gospel does. It allows you into a kind of internal look of the dynamic of who, of who this Jesus is. So that's one sort of entry point here into John's Gospel. A second thing to, to, to make note of. John's Gospel has a sort of fascinating interplay between history and theology. John's Gospel wants you to know that when you encounter Jesus of Nazareth, you are encountering the truth. And when you encounter Jesus of Nazareth as, as the truth, You're encountering him in human flesh, reality. It's not an escape from this world, it's an understanding of what this world was meant and intended to be in Jesus. In other words, John's gospel wants you to feel and touch and engage Jesus in that kind of very uh, human incarnational way. Um, The epistles to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, say things like, the one whom we saw, we touched, and we handled. Because the Gospel of John and the epistles of John later want you to know that your encounter with Jesus of Nazareth is something that's rooted in real life and history. I I, I remember being in, in seminary back in the day and having, I'm sure many of you have had these moments too, a kind of aha moment when one of my professors was talking about the reality of Jesus' humanity, the fact that Jesus was really a man, um, wasn't pretending to be a man, uh, didn't just sort of incorporate a man in his mental capacity, but he was fully a man from top to bottom. And the way which my professor framed it was like this. If you were in first, the first century world of Israel, um, you could have been in that moment and walked by Jesus of Nazareth on the street and not even thought twice about who he was. And I, re- I remember that just sticking to me because I, I think in my own mind, I tend or at least tended to think of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century world walking around in such a way that, I don't know, maybe there's some you know, King's College singers that are around him as he's walking down the street. But it's, 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 it's not that kind of thing. Jesus was fully man in a way that could be, I have to be careful how I say this, but in a way that could be unremarkable. I mean, th- this is why I think you have people from Nazareth saying, isn't that Joseph's kid? And he's the one who's doing all these remarkable things? Isn't that, isn't that the carpenter's son? Um, he's doing this? Um, and, and here's another facet to take into account with the first century world, and, and, and I've, I've, I think this is something really to wrestle with. Being close to Jesus in that world was not a guarantee that you would have accepted him for who he truly is. In fact, being close to Jesus in the first century world might have been more of a hurdle than it would have been an entry point to, to your, toward your belief Um, I mean, think about what people actually saw Jesus do. They saw Jesus do miraculous things. They saw him raise people from the dead. And yet, they still, seeing those things, did not necessarily lend themselves toward belief. And belief in the truth of who Jesus is. In other words, proximity to the historical event itself is not a guarantee of the truth. As important as the history is. What do we need to understand the reality of those historical moments? We need the revelation of God. And this is where you begin to see revelation and history related to one another. Just because I engaged Jesus historically, and by the way, it's really important that Jesus lived it's really important that Jesus is not a sort of a myth of Christian creation of the, early, of the early church. There are a lot who teach that idea about Christianity to this day. That the whole Jesus narrative of his birth, his virgin birth, his, his miraculous life, his death and his resurrection, all of that is kind of the creative, religious imagination of the earliest Christians that then took on a life in the Roman Empire. That, that narrative is out and about. Just turn on the history channel or the discovery channel as we move into the Easter season and you'll see that narrative repeated again and again and again. And John's gospel wants you to know that is not true. And it's important that it's not true because Jesus entering into the world in human flesh is what guarantees your and my salvation. I say this to my students at Beeson with some regularity. If Jesus is not really a human being, then, and here's a big and, and now, then we are not redeemed, we are not saved. He entered into the world, into the chaos of our world and human flesh, humbling himself in that way, so that what? So that he can take humanity as it was intended to be back into the very life of God himself. And in Christ, we are located there right now. So humanity, physicality is important. John's gospel does not want us to escape into a spiritual nether world that's not tethered to the physicality of the world in which we live. We're drawn into the very life of God in the human flesh of Jesus Christ. But being close to that flesh historically was not enough. I mean, this is crucial. What was needed was the speaking voice of God himself to let us know and to tell us and to reveal to us the significance of what that historical moment actually is. Um, oh, this is going to get technical. Uh, third gear for one second. Um, I think one would want to make a kind of distinction, though they're related, between the historicity or the factuality of an event, of, let's say, of Jesus of Nazareth. I'll put it in these terms. Um, one could go. Oh, I think this is true. One could go to Tacitus or Josephus, and be able to call together enough documentation from the first century world to make this claim. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth in the first century world who became a kind of political problem for Rome and for Caesar and especially there for Herod in Jerusalem. And he eventually in time was crucified, kind of like Spartacus, but a hundred years earlier, um, as a testimony to those uh, who try to set themselves up over against the rule of Rome. And Jesus of Nazareth was a, was a prophet, he was a sage, he was a miracle worker, and he, he, and he died on a Roman cross. Um, we can put together the facts of those events by, I guess, the standards of what you might think of as modern historiography. But can you see how radically um, far one has to move from that kind of claim to this claim? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. A claim that in Jesus of Nazareth, God steps into time in the flesh of humanity, lives humanity's life for him and her, dies humanity's death, and is now raised, and all who set their belief on him are already sharers in eternal life. My my point is, I can't go to Tacitus for any of that. Josephus is not going to help me with any of that. I need revelation. And that's where John's Gospel steps in to let you know the historical event Jesus of Nazareth is true. And I want to take you in on an insider's look on the significance of what this human being actually was and is in the life of God, how it relates to the entirety of the world. Okay? A few more things. Um, John's Gospel is concerned... And if you have your Bible here, you can see this. John's gospel is concerned from beginning to the end um, with belief. I've come that they might know and that they might believe. So if you flip your page all the way back, or your book, your Bible, all the way back to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31... You'll read this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then when you look at the end of John 21, the last verse of the whole gospel, here's what we read, there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Um, And then if you look at the verse before it, this is the disciple who bears witness about these things and has written these testimonies. And we know that the testimony is true. So you see from the end of John's gospel that John wants you to know he's writing this gospel with a particular goal in view, namely belief. Namely, faith, putting our trust in this reality of Jesus Christ and knowing that it's true and that it's true for us. It's not just an intellectual assent, but we see it as trustworthy and true. I used to, for a long time, read the end of John's Gospel as a kind of superlative statement. Jesus did so many other things that if you wrote about it, it would go, I mean, the book would go to the moon and back. And so that was kind of a positive statement. I think I now read the end of John's gospel as a statement of negation. In other words, here at the end, John is telling you, and I think this is, by the way, an ending to not just John, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the whole fourfold gospel, that John is telling you Jesus did a lot of other things. And there are a lot of other books that might be written about him. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God of the living God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. Do you you see how that's a negation? There may be a lot of other books out there, but these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are sufficient, and they're authoritative, and they're canonical. They are the unique gifts that God has given to His church so that we can come to terms with who Jesus was and and who Jesus is. Alright, so John's gospel is leaning heavily into the dynamics of Christian faith coming to terms with the historical reality, who is Jesus, and the theological substance of who this Jesus is, Messiah and Son of God. One other feature before we look at the first three, because I want to look at John 1, 1 to 3 with you this morning, but one other feature that I, I, just, I find so interesting about John's gospel, as it's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is, is what's conspicuous in its absence. That there are features of the other Gospels that are not present in John that are kind of screaming out to us, why aren't they there? Because there are three, what we would consider, I think, to be biggies. Um, are you ready? Number one, no birth narrative in John's Gospel. No Mary and Joseph, I mean, nativity scene, not in John's Gospel. I'll come back to that. No baptism of Jesus in John's gospel. No final supper, last supper, in John's gospel. So these are interesting gaps that you might, that, and, and by the way, there are all kinds of theories about why that's the case. Um, unfortunately, you got me this morning, so I'm going to give you the, the gentlet theory. Um, my sense is that the reason why the birth narrative and the baptism narrative and the Lord's Supper narrative are not present in John's Gospel is twofold. Number one, John assumes you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Mark. He assumes that you've read Mark. But number two, these narratives that you find in John's Gospel often function on two layers. You'll have the event itself, the thing that occurred, and then you'll have another layer that's meant to be read, I think, on a on a more theological, substantial level. Let me give you these these thoughts. Number number one, no birth narrative in John's gospel. John 1 verses 1 through 3 is John's birth narrative. In other words, John knows that you've read about the birth narrative of of Mary and Joseph and the babe and the the shepherd. He knows that you've read that. But John wants to push you back into eternity. into the very life of God himself and to let you know you know about his earthly beginnings. I want you to know about his eternal identity as the very son of God eternally generated by the Father. This is, this is the birth narrative that I want to give you in conjunction with the birth narratives that you already know. No baptism narrative? Well, this is debated, okay? So I'm, I'm going to you know, take this with a grain of salt. But John 3... Um, when Jesus encounters Nicodemus in that evening meeting, and Jesus begins to talk with Nicodemus about the importance of being born by water and the Spirit, I think one can argue, and by the way, I think I have the whole history of the church behind me on this, one could argue that's John's baptism narrative there, where Jesus leans into a doctrine of baptism in his conversation with with, uh, Nicodemus. No Lord's Supper, no final supper scene, no Eucharistic scene, One could argue that when Jesus in John chapter 6 says, if you don't eat my flesh and you don't drink my blood, you have no participation with me, that here you have John giving his final supper scene in that John 6 narrative of Jesus. So I think what you have is a kind of interesting play in John's gospel between these events that occurred and an entrance into the, into the theological significance of these events as they relate to the birth of Jesus, the significance of baptism, and what it means to participate in communion and our actual involvement in Jesus Christ himself when we when we go to the table uh, week in and week out. All right? All of that was meant to be throat clearing. Uh, introduction to get to John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. So can we look at that real fast? Keep me honest, David, on time. Oops, okay. So Let me read you John John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that that was made. Immediately here in John's Gospel, um, John is thinking in terms of the whole of the Bible. He's thinking in terms of creation. He's thinking in terms of the world and its beginnings. In the beginning, the Word was with God. Um, You know that the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And in fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was instrumental in both the New Testament's own composition, the New Testament's coming to be, and in the early church. So think if this is a Greek-speaking world, not very many people knew Hebrew in this particular moment in time, at at least Greek-speaking Christians. And so that Greek translation was really important. I-, I encourage my students at Beeson with this because they all, unfortunately, have to take Hebrew. I tell them this is part of their way to, to earn some time off of purgatory. Um, but they-, they-, they have to um, take Hebrew. And I encourage them because we have all these sort of you know, significant figures in the history of the church up in our dome, and very few of them up there actually knew Hebrew. I said, Don- don't worry, none of you are ever going to make the dome. None of us. We're never going to make the dome. Um, but some really important people got up there, and, and they didn't know Hebrew either, so that's okay. Um, but the beginning of uh, of the Greek translation of Genesis chapter one, verse one, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, begins like this: in Arche, in the beginning. That's the Greek translation. And here we have John chapter one, verse one, beginning just like that: in Arche, in the beginning. So what you have here is a kind of T.S. Eliot notion of time, right? You remember what Eliot said where he says, I came to the end, and when I came to the end... And then I discovered the beginning and knew the beginning for the very first time, right? So in this sort of moment of time when we come to the end of our lives, the end is arriving at the beginning and knowing the beginning as it was really meant to be known. And, and I know that sounds super confusing, but I think we all get that as adults as we age, right? It's the, um, it's, it's the, the old joke about teenagers who, when they're 13, they think their parents are really stupid. Um, and by the time they get to the age of 19 and 20, they're like, boy, mom and dad seem to have learned some things over the, you know, the past six years. Um, because as we grow and as we develop, we realize that we don't even know what we don't know. Right? Um, so here you have John telling us, listen, you've heard in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You know Genesis 1-1. But I want to take you back to the beginning so that you understand that moment in its fullness in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That creative moment that centers right on the heart of Christian theology, (laughs) namely this, that God is the creator in need of nothing external to himself. The world did not have to be For God to enter into a fuller mode of his own being or into a fuller relationship of love with something else, God's internal triune life was sufficient and complete and in need of no necessity external to himself forever, including time. And here in John 1.1, John wants you to know that in that eternal triune relationship of love, that the word was present there. The word is not a part of the creation. The word is a part of the creator himself. Because that creator-creature distinction is central to all Christian theology. We we confessed it this morning when we came together and did the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Every time we confess that together as a church, we're confessing that God is God and his creation is distinct from him. He's not dependent on it. And yet he gives himself to the creation as an act of his own love and largesse to humanity. So the fact that you are and that we have Timber and wood and stained glass here and Red Mountain right outside the door and trees and lakes and fish and dogs. The, the fact that all of that exists around us is an indication that God, in his own self sufficiency and an act of his own love, moved outside of himself to create the world and to love it. None of this had to be. None of it did. That's why, even in our, didn't mean to talk about this, but even in our prayer of general thanksgiving, We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. That's John 1, 1, Genesis 1, 1 kind of thanksgiving. The world and all the goodness that God has given us in this world is not something that needed to be. And yet it is. And why is it? John 1 wants you to know. It is because in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. God the Father in relationship to the Word and in the combustive, explosive love that's fueled by the Spirit spoke and the world came into being. And John's Gospel wants you to know that in that speaking moment, the creative agency and energy of God the Father is who you are encountering when you meet Jesus of Nazareth. And I I just don't think we can ever get over that. But that's the kind of thing that's meant to blow whatever hair you have left, and mine's getting less, but it's meant to blow it back again and again. To, to think that this Jesus of Nazareth, who sat around a fire with his disciples and tore bread and, and, and met with people and, and would speak to the multitudes and would get on a boat and would have to go out under the trees and take a little nap because he got tired, that Jesus of Nazareth was the creative agency that brought the world into being. He was the one that brought this world into its very existence. And without him, John's Gospel wants you to know, all of it would fly apart. I mean, this this is a lesson in how the world comes to be, and it all has to do with the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and and the Word was God. So what do you have here in this language? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You see that the Word is God and is distinct at the same time. In other words, his divinity is full fully God, and in the fullness of what God's being is, and yet there's a distinction within God's own being. This is, again, Trinitarian theology at work in John's gospel. And John's gospel wants you to know, Jesus wants you to know through John's gospel, that this whole reflection on the Trinity and creation and the world, it's not just a kind of abstract idea for seminary students or Sunday school classes to talk about on a Sunday morning but it has to do with the very center of our existence in this world and in this life, what it means for us to be. I, I, I sense this even and appreciated what Zach had to say this morning um, as it relates to the ordering of our affections and our desires. I, I, he's, he's so right on, on what he was le- the dynamic that he was leaning into today that we're not primarily cerebral creatures. We're not primarily creatures who are are detached, rational agents. But we're people who tend to live by our desires. We tend to live by our desires, and our desires, as Augustine said, um, are ordered and restless until they find rest in him. And John's gospel is painting for you this enormous picture of the ocean of God's being revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, and he's inviting you into the water. That's what's so remarkable. He's inviting you in to say, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, who you have read about, and who many of you have seen, is the very creative agency of God himself. He is the word, and the word is God's gift to humanity. The word is God's, I mean, it sounds trite, but I'm going to say it. It's God's love letter to you and to me. Why? Because he's not left us to our own intellectual and imaginative devices to come to terms with who God is. The great philosophical question of the ages. Why is there something and not nothing, right? And, And John's gospel is saying, we're not leaving you to the best of your own intellectual efforts to figure that out. We want you to know a clear and definitive and true answer regarding that question. And here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's why things are. And that's why in coming to terms with the way things are, God has given us speech, and he's given us words, he's given us his Son, he's given us the Bible to witness to who he is so that we can enter into the ocean of his very being. John 17, 3. Jesus prayed this the night before he died. He said, if you know the Son and you have knowledge of the Son, then you are already experiencing and have hold and can lay claim to eternal life itself. What is it that we want more than anything else? The fullness of life. To really know what it is to be, to live, to enter into that kind of overwhelming happiness, true happiness. And what do we do? This is what C.S. Lewis said so long ago. We're like children. I am. I know I am. We like to go and play in the mud, you know, right? Make little pies together. And this is, this, this, this is going to make me so happy. And, and we know that these mud pies that we play with, that we think are going to bring us ultimate satisfaction, that they're, they're, they're nothing. They're mud pies. And this is what Lewis said. And we make these mud pies when we're sitting right by the ocean. And God is saying, why don't you come in here? Why play in the mud when I've offered you a holiday in the sea? Um, and John's gospel wants you to know that the invitation that's given to you and to me, especially in the season of Christmas and Epiphany, is an invitation into the very being of God's existence. And where do we, how do we get into that kind of existence? Only... Through Jesus of Nazareth, who was the very Word of God that brought the world into existence and now has redeemed it and elevated humanity into the very life of God. So, Lord, as we sort of press into this together over these next few weeks, we we want we want to ask you on the front end that you would recalibrate us, that you'd reset our desires. Lord, that you would let us know that all the blessings of this life that you've given us, the goodness of the created world, is your gift. And yet, Lord, I pray that you will help us not to make those gifts into idols because we know that they don't satisfy ultimately. Let those gifts draw us into the immeasurable love that we have and your son, and let that drive and shape our identity, our concept of ourselves, and our concept, Lord, of what we really want out of this life. So I pray that John's gospel and, Lord, the the portrait that he gives to us of you, Jesus, in all of your glory, that that would be bigger and better and more beautiful than anything else that we might be able to construe and construct with our own imagination. And we know, Lord, that if you can take us into that, You do it because of your kindness and because of your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.